Earlier today, I had the pleasure of talking to Jared Harris alongside his wife Allegra live in studio for UCC's Talking Pictures podcast with Shannon Cotter on UCC 98.3 FM. And I am delighted to announce in studio we have a very special guest today. Sitting across from me is the acclaimed actor Jared Harris, best known for his roles on Mad Men, The Crown and Chernobyl, where he's nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor. Last year, Jared and his family very kindly decided to donate the archives of his father's, the late and great Richard Harris, to University College Cork, which consists of photographs, manuscripts and letters belonging to the actor over a 50-year period. I feel very lucky to be sitting with him in the studio today, so I suppose we'll get started anyways. So, Jared, how are you getting on? And, of course, we have in studio his wife, Allegra, who's looking absolutely stunning. Just found out that he bought a wonderful scarf for her as well, so it's a great time today. If you're making me nice look Nice job, dear, nice <laughs> Thank job. You. Thank you. So, how are you guys getting on anyways? We're still married. That's a good start. Yeah, uh, we're coming up on our 10-year wedding anniversary in November. I have high hopes for us. <laughs> so am I. Knock on wood. So, um, it's absolutely fantastic that your family donated the collection to UCC since it basically introduces a new generation of students to your father's work. What was it like here today, being on campus and seeing the students and the archive finally in place? It's great. I had a lovely long Q&A session with the students. We got a tour of the facilities. Um, I was shown some of the, uh, the artefacts, the treasures in the archive and um, taken down into the vaults. And, you know, it's a tremendous relief to me. Um, my, my nightmare, that things that would keep me awake at night, was that this archive that was essentially in boxes up in Oxford in a damp lockup was to one day end up on being auctioned off on storage walls or something like that. And because um, someone would lose track of where it was or forget to pay the bill or something. Uh, so I, I'm delighted that it's here. I'm delighted that um, uh, Cronin is looking after it and that we made that contact. And, you know, uh, I we had we looked at several possibilities of where the archive could go and it strangely enough proved more difficult than one would think in trying to get interest but the moment that i spoke to barry and to cronin um they immediately were excited and they immediately understood what its value was and and um that it should be preserved and uh that kind of enthusiasm goes a long way to convincing you you found the right place so i'm tremendously grateful to them and to the university for taking care of it i personally as well am very grateful to barry cronin and cork university as jared said he lost sleep over this i'm going to say for about 20 years so thank you all for helping my husband to finally sleep to say we'll have to have you as honorary members of cork now because we're absolutely delighted to have it we're delighted to have you here too so your father was originally from limerick was there a particular reason why you decided to settle on cork yes well we, you know we wanted it to go to ireland and and we wanted it to go to munster and um uh you know, the, the, this university has programs that reflect his interests. They have a theatre, film, and music programs, and um, it, it's it seemed uh, like a, an obvious logical fit that there are things in his life and in his archive that would dovetail with the interests of the students that were going to be in the university and be able to use those, uh, you know, to create their own wherever their journey is going to go, but to use it as uh, resources or tools for inspiration that's brilliant 
Looking at the archives when you found them, was there anything in particular that stood out to you or surprised you? There's lots of stuff in there. Um, there's over 150 unpublished poems. There's uh, letters that he wrote. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the letters that he wrote when he was young, a young actor starting out in London, is as many young people will um, uh, be able to identify with. It's a letter to his mum asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, having written that letter to him and to my mum, it was, I was, you're, you're, you're tremendously, you know, you're encouraged that, of course, he, had, he was in the same boat in the same situation. Um, I was thrilled that we actually found his um, Cannes Film Festival Awards in there. It was the last place that I saw that was in my mother's father's apartment in London, and that has to be 40 years ago, and I had completely lost track of them and didn't know where they ended up. So the fact that somehow they ended up in, this, uh, in his archive is amazing. I remember being thrilled when we was going through it with Cronin in the lockup and realising that it was there. I, I thought that had been lost. The, we, we moved stuff up from, at one point, a de over a decade ago, from a storage in London to a storage in Oxford. And during that move, a bunch of stuff disappeared. So I didn't know what was going to show up when we started to go through it again. So there's lots of lovely surprises. Great pictures as well, family pictures and professional photographs. It's amazing. It's a, in its uh, enormity. The the true telling of a, an artist's life. It's 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 incredible. We're so grateful to Cork University for having space for all. <laughs> you guys are just like looking out. You're actually trying to clear up your home. I see how it is. <laughs> your dad was obviously a very big rugby fan. Was there mm. a lot to do in the archive with rugby? There's lots in there to do with rugby. I mean, he played rugby when he was a young man. Thought that that's going to be he was that's what's going to be his career. Um, and some part of him never sort of totally detached himself from that dream. Um, and there's um, one of the things that's in there that's quite amusing is he often disagreed with the, the selectors with the Irish national team, and he would write letters to the, the selectors or to the coach telling them which players they should be choosing oh, and that they were deliberately ignoring the Munster players. Um, and he would say these people would be better suited, and you know, and you're, 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 you're ignoring them to the detriment of the side. And we could be winning, you know, <laughs> World Cups if you would just put the Munster players in, you know. I love that double jobbing as like a rugby coach and also an actor. Fair play to. Oh yeah, we were on. We were doing something in Dublin, and um, I met, we were staying at a hotel, the Barclay Court Hotel, and I came down uh, late in the afternoon to go out to dinner with him and have a drink with him in the bar. He was given a terrible bollocking to somebody there, and I found out it was the Irish coach. <laughs> no, and he was telling him off for um, for ruining our pros you know your prospects um, in the competitions for picking the wrong players. <laughs> That's absolutely hilarious. Your dad was such a character. Um, last year, Ghost of Richard Harris was a documentary that yeah. was put out, and you said that you kind of wanted to put out a different image that was like I suppose the so-called Hellraiser image he put to the media. What would you like people to know about your dad that you don't think was often seen in the public eye? Well, I think, and again, he did feed into this image. It was this idea that he was this sort of 
bon vivant who was sort of devouring life and you know uh, uh, the, the hellraiser image was that was to the to the detriment of um his reputation as a as an actor and as a as an artist and i and i wanted that to be put into perspective um and that there was much more to him than that image which you know he fed so um uh he was a you know he was a he was kind of a renaissance man you know he was a poet he was an actor he was a singer he was a you know a producer he was a writer um there was a big apt and had this huge appetite for life and he was sort of juggling all of these aspects and he was a great dad you know and he was a family man he cared about his family and he was an incredibly loyal friend you know so um there's a much bigger picture there than just the one that the press liked to reprint there was a uh, one story I remember hearing you speak about. It was while you were at, I think it was in the Bahamas, and you were playing. Was it a game of football? And a few things got broken. Would oh you yeah. Be able to remind us of that by any chance? We'd just flown in. I think it was the first time we got to the house, and um, we'd come off this long ten-hour flight from London, and we're restless and we're kicking a ball around in the, the sitting room, and um, we broke something in there, and we someone we were told off for having broken it and um dad said no no you know let them do what they want in fact he says i hate that particular figurine over there he says i'll give you 20 bucks if you break it is if you can break it with a header i'll give you 40. <laughs> so he was a you know he loved i think he loved the anarchy that children brought you know he, he he wasn't someone who was comfortable with rules you know he liked to break them and um i think he loved the ki us kids for that reason. I mean, I remember another time, quite accidentally, he he had told us that he and his second wife Anne were going to only do movies together, and um, quite innocently, we went, "Oh, like Laurel and Hardy," <laughs> and he said, "No, like Bogart and Bacall, you know, or yeah. Olivier and Vivian Lee." We went, okay, all like Abbott and Costello, you know, because those are the only references that we had. But he laughed, she didn't. <laughs> I'm laughing on the inside. No, I meant, I meant I Anne mean didn't Anne. laugh. His wife didn't laugh. Obviously, you are a very established actor yourself. Do you think your father's career had some influence into why you wanted to go into acting, directing? I mean, it, it must have. But, you know, also, my mother was an actor. You know, and that's how they met. And uh, she w she was always encouraging us to so to maintain our our um, association or, or interest in theatre because she saw that as being our roots because they were part of her roots and his roots. But um, yeah, I have to say that encouragement came from her, not from him initially. You know, he he I was very shy. And he didn't think that I was suited for it. And I was, my first plays were at Duke University and she would come down and see me and say, oh, you should go and see him, he's very good. And he'd go, well, you would say that, you're his mother. And um, he didn't want, he wouldn't come down. And it wasn't until I'd graduated and I'd stayed over in the summer to do a play. And by then I'd made a movie and he came down to see the film in the afternoon and the play in the evening. And he was, he went down there prepared to say, just forget about acting, be a director. 
And um, I remember very clearly five minutes into the play when I heard his first, got the first laugh out of him. And it, you know, it completely changed our relationship because I was, he, I was passionate about something that he was and we could talk about a subject that's actually very boring, which is acting. <laughs> Not a fun subject to talk about. But I was fascinated by what he had to say about it and talk about performances and the way different people had played famous roles, you know? Mm-hmm. Is there any of your dad's films which you would consider, like, the most personal to yourself? <sighs> That's tough. The most personal. I mean, at different points of his life, you know, like, you know, his music is extremely evocative to me because I, I remember them sitting on the old harpsichord piano in Tower House trying to come up with tunes and tinkering away on it. Um, so the, the, the harpsichord that plays through a lot of those early Jimmy Webb songs is immediately evocative to me. Obviously the, you know, Camelot. But I, there was a movie he did called To Walk With Lions that was I, I found very evocative and it's about um, was the guy uh, Adams who's he was married to the woman who who's part of that story, the Born Free story, who, who looked after the lions. Anyway, he did this movie in Africa um, about this guy who um, stayed behind to take care of these lions. And um, there was something about the old lion about him, you know. And um, I find that movie very evocative of that, the last phase of his life. And my those memories are fresher than the earlier ones, you know. It's difficult. To pick one. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, speaking of your own work, you got nominated for the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor in Chernobyl. What was it like when the first script came into your hands? It said HBO on it, so I was, <laughs> I was sold right there. <laughs> I see. I love the commitment to HBO. That's a... uh, HBO, do, they do yeah. good work. Oh, yeah. You know, you know not, they don't mess around. Among their... Finest first work is putting Camelot on as what the first movie play, uh, the first film performance of a stage play. That's, That's true. Right. Yeah, That's brilliant. Yeah. Fun yeah. fact. Good, good, good recall. Good recall. I've been around for a few years. <laughs> Thank you, my love. What was it like getting the nomination? Because that show, even though mostly disappointing, because I kept losing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I see. I shouldn't have brought that up. It's a very touchy subject. But it was a show that, even though in terms of promotion, it came out during the summer. Spoiler alert, wasn't exactly the most fun show to be watching if you're in need of a break. But it just completely blew up. Like, what was like, what was it like to watch that happen? That, that was unexpected. I mean, I, you know, I don't think that any of us expected it to catch on in that way, did we? I would like to thank the final season of Game of Thrones for the popularity of Chernobyl personally. I, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the um, executive producer of Game of Thrones, Carolyn Strauss, was also the executive producer of Chernobyl. And in the final season which I don't know if I'm spoiling anything. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just going to say either people liked it or they didn't. Anyway, she used Chernobyl, uh, she used the trailer for Chernobyl before and after the episodes of um, Game of Thrones. So while people were watching Game of Thrones and maybe liking them, maybe not liking them, they started to become interested in what was happening. And before the end of the season of Game of Thrones, the first episode of Chernobyl had premiered. So the people from Game of Thrones, in their rage... watched Chernobyl and were blown away by a completely different type of storytelling. So rather than throw their HBO sets out, 
or whatever you call it, the cable <laughs> box. They were like, well, damn it, we have to finish watching Chernobyl. It's something completely different. At the end of the fifth episode, they were reminded of what HBO stands for, which is most often good television. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it was a slow burn because people had to be persuaded to watch it because it doesn't sound like the most, you know, uplifting story, Chernobyl, a, a desperate nuclear uh, accident that, um, you know, kills a lot of people and almost brings Europe down. Really but, human story. Yeah. yeah. But um, but it, 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 it was constantly, people were saying, no, you've got to watch it, you've got to watch it, you've got to watch it. So it built and built and built. And obviously it helped that we were featured in so many of the um, the awards conversations. So, um, yeah, but nobody expected it to take off in the way it did. And part of it had to do with the political climate at the time that there was this dumpster fire going on in the, the United States and there's someone who was lying all the time. And, um, and this was the truth about the importance of telling the truth yeah. and how lies would catch up with you. So there was, I imagine that there was a feeling for that sense of accountability to happen, you know? And then any time that there's something that happens where there's a cover-up, the story gets a resonance all over again, you know, so... Which is funny because the creator of the show, um, Craig Mazin, was completely taken by surprise by how people started associating their feelings about what could be the underlying message of Chernobyl with, say, climate change or whatever. He, completely unintended, but he happily capitalized on it. <laughs> well, it's, it's in there. Too many, in the many DNA, awards during awards season. <laughs> yeah. It's also beautiful storytelling. Like, even though it's quite um, very much on the gray scale visually, it's just done so beautifully. And the sound, um, every element really, like, like HBO can do, fantastic storytelling. Well, it's interesting as you mentioned Craig, and one of the things, he's a brilliant writer and he has a podcast where he, he talks about all aspects of story writing and genre and stuff like that. And one of the very clever things that he did in the DNA of the show was there's five episodes, but each episode, if you like, is uses a different genre blueprint um, for its structure. So the, the first episode is a kind of deconstructed monster movie where the, the reactor is the monster, and, of course, you don't see it until the end of the episode. The second episode is a disaster movie, the third episode is an espionage movie. The fourth episode is a war movie. And the fifth episode is a courtroom drama. So he used everything that he understood about how the structure, that you, the rules that you have about telling those stories so that each episode would feel, have its own unique flavor to it. It's too bad he didn't get to go to episode six, which I was hoping would be romantic comedy <laughs> between, of course, Jared and Stellan's character because there was a serious bromance there. I don't know if you picked up on it. Oh, no, I felt the chemistry. Allegra, I think we need you in... We need you directing. Like, she knows what's up. Like, she does. Yeah, like... I'm a lighting designer, and people who know lighting can understand directing. Yeah, she knows the areas. Like, Chernobyl could have used a bit more romance in it, probably. Well... A bit dark. Jared really, really was pushing for some comedy, which Craig was <laughs> vehemently against, but Stellan Skarsgård, being the genius actor that he is, he slips him in there. He did. He got some laughs. I have to say, though, your comparison to climate change is very accurate because, like, you know, even the scene where they're flying over the building and it's like, don't go in there, and they're like, mm. well, I can't see anything. It's very mm. comparable to climate change. You know what was hilarious about that in America? So I'm not sure if you're aware of the American political climate, but there are the... It's just... Uh, there's a lot of heroes and villains, and uh, 
each thinks they are the other. It's just weird. But yeah. the people uh, on the right wing side of uh, American politics who are very staunchly like pro gun, anti science, anti this, anti that, whatever. Even they went on their own right-wing podcasts and said, why didn't anybody listen to the scientists? And we were like, are you watching this? Are you hearing yourself? Will somebody buy you a mirror? Here's a quarter. Go buy a clip. It was great. And Craig was just giggling in the background because when... (laughs) This is a fun fact. When Craig was at college, his college roommate was... uh, Ted Cruz. What? Yes. Oh, you guys didn't know. It's scandalo. So... Ted Cruz years ago started coming out being like a little more on the evangelical side, coming down on people with like liberal backgrounds. And can I use the word masturbation on this radio? Yeah. Okay. So I'm he came the out publicly well, against masturbation. A, and ooh, I'm a Bible He was beater. a devotee of Owenism. This is where Craig Mason, creator of uh, Chernobyl, took to Twitter and said, Hello, my name is Craig Mason, and I was Ted Cruz's college roommate. And I can tell you, his, his his views on masturbation now weren't those when we were in college. Oh, sort of insinuating no. you hear things through the yeah. wall. It was great. <laughs> that is not the story I expected to get today, but I'm very glad I got it. You're welcome. Thank you so Ireland. much, Allegra. <laughs> we, I think we need Allegra back. You need to be a regular at this stage. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, I think Craig uh, Mason as well, His he's a great journey as well because he wrote, I think, was it the script for a scary movie? And I mean, he kind of did a lot of scripts over the years that I suppose people just miss and then it was Chernobyl and everybody's like, wow, how do we never notice him before? Well, I and mean, he's doing, uh, The Hangover 2 and the 3. The Last of Us. Yeah. The Last of Us That's he's doing now. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that, he wrote that. With yeah. a lot of the people who helped uh, create Chernobyl, Carolyn Strauss, again. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of TV shows, anything you guys are watching at the moment? What are we watching? Um, ooh. I watch uh, only the Food Network because you're ahead. guaranteed not to have breaking news when you're watching a Food Network show. Um, that is a very good point. I, we, I just watched The Last of Us. Yeah, we um, watched The Last of Us. I watched um, Barry. Barry's Love Barry. HBO. Uh, looking forward to catching up with uh, Ted Lasso, where we, you know, we're of that generation, so we're Star Wars anything fans. So oh. we've watched The Mandalorian oh. and we've watched... Um, the uh, what's the other one? The um, Andor is it? We haven't got to Andor yet. We got the other one with uh, um, I can't remember the name. Anyway, we watched all of them. Dancing with the Stars, the US version. Oh, nice. Team Shangela. We have the Irish version here. It's probably not as good, but like we love it anyways. Sure it's wonderful. The Irish are known for dancing. RuPaul. Oh, Drag nice. Race. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, content out now. It's yeah. hard to keep on top of it all. Would you guys be happy to go on as judges on RuPaul's Drag Race if they gave you the option? You'd be great on it. It's a dream. <laughs> yeah. We'll that would be there. amazing, you know, uh, being the actor coach in one of the acting challenges. I, th- I think Allegra would be fantastic on it. I think she would be I'm too. not the famous one. You're like, you've I'll got, feed like, you lines. Wit. You'll get an earbud. You've got to be starting up your own podcast. Like, we need you. <laughs> we need more Allegra in the world, I think. So you have a new film and television series coming up. Can you tell us a bit about them? Because they are both very intriguing projects. One is an opera project. And the other one is another one directed by your brother, Brave the Dark. Do you mind elaborating a bit on them for any listeners today? A film that I did with my brother, Damien, he directed that me and my younger brother both acted in called Brave the Dark. And um, then I have uh, season two of Foundations starting as in May. And then... um, Huh? I thought it came out in the summer. I don't know. Well... Check your local listings. May-ish. 
I don't know. They haven't exactly told me yet, but fairly soon. Um, uh, this company called Apple, which apparently is quite Make well known, will start to yeah. put trailers out. Um, and then there's a. I did an independent movie in London last summer called Reawakening. That um, I hope it's going to come out at the end of the year. Is that Britbox? No, no. That's um, Britbox is a documentary. Oh my bad. That's absolutely brilliant to hear. Speaking of directors and acting, is there any particular director or actor you'd like to work with if you had the opportunity? Paul Thomas Anderson. Amazing. Yeah. Such a good choice. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely brilliant. And I suppose just heading off before UCC cuts my runtime. Are they? Um, Are they not banging on the door? No one's oh, banging yeah. on the door yet. Yeah, I think it's, you're all right. Yeah, here all day. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure someone's in here yeah. at 4 o'clock. Well, but, like... Wait until he starts banging on the door. <laughs> Um, actually, well, people say, I'm tired of listening to people talking, play some music. How has your trip in Cork been? Have you done anything exciting since Well, we just got here late yesterday afternoon, okay. so we're going to go for... Um, uh, we're we're going to be taking on a tour of the city and a tour of the countryside and nice. tour of the university, so there's a lot more coming. Jared was able to see a lot today uh, in the university. Yeah. Uh, some sort of hall of rare books or something like that yeah i got pictures yeah amazing i went to the, the spa and had a massage lovely i am very relaxed thank you and uh for the final question what tips would you have for any actors trying to break into the industry or getting started in acting yes this is a tough one um i mean uh don't give up number one if you're if you if you're passionate about it um don't give up it you know you you're never not getting knocked back. I mean, for example, in my father's archive, there's a letter that he writes to his agent where he's basically bemoaning or irritated at the fact that Sean Connery and Anthony Hopkins are taking all the parts that he wants. Oh my God. So it never ends. You know, the, 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 the disappointments and being knocked back and the frustrations and the struggle, it never ends. Um... And then the next thing I would say is um, learn your craft. You know, uh, study, go to school. If the teacher that you're studying with isn't doing it for you, find a different one. Find somebody that you'll connect to. Um, a great way of learning as well is to watch um, performances. So watch film, watch TV, look at old movies, study those people, try and figure out why they were effective in doing what they were doing. Because um, it's all out there. You can learn it. It's very difficult to teach, but you can learn it. That's absolutely fantastic advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm very, I feel very privileged to be speaking to both of you. So thank, thank you so much for coming and Bless coming you. to UCC. Thank you. Also, do you know any Irish before you go? Uh, I, I, I'm a quick learner. Erin Gilbra. Slán Gafol. Goodbye. That's Irish. Slán. Slán Gafol. Perfect. Thank you so much, guys. Who did That's... it better? Oh, come on. Oh, this is... Slán Gafol. Go for it. Slánta. Slán Gafol. I have to say, Allegra has the pronunciation yeah, a bit yeah. more down. Thank you so much, guys. You've been absolutely brilliant. So for everyone who's listening, um, the archives will be available in UCC over the coming months. They are appearing in Limerick, I'm fairly sure, first, but we'll keep you up to date on it. Just before we go, we're going to play a song by Richard Harris himself. MacArthur Park, so I hope all of you really enjoy it. Thank you so much to Allegra and Jared for coming today. Bless Absolutely you. fantastic. Thank it was you. a pleasure to have you. Enjoy, everyone.